It's good to see you all. If you don't mind, go ahead and find your way back to your seats, and we'll jump into today's sermon. Good, 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 good. Well, welcome. My name is Eric Thien. I'm the lead pastor here at Common Ground Northeast. It's good to have you all here. Um, last week, if you were here, you, you know that we jumped into um, a new series uh, for the fall that's, that's one that's meant more for us to kind of have this self-discovery, right? Like if you're new here or if you've been around for a while, it's an establishing of core values and a remembering of core values. What anchors us to who we are now that we've walked through kind of a season of scattering because of COVID, of all the different things and transitions that have taken place here at Common Ground Northeast. It's just this idea of what are our core values and what anchors us to us, to, to who we are and what makes Common Ground Northeast, Common Ground Northeast. And so I started last week, um, our first core value is our name, and that the idea of common ground is a, a value that we hold, not just the name and what we call ourselves. And so we established that there's some churches that embrace strict, traditional, liturgical, theological definitions, denominational structures that they'll embrace, right? And they have a benefit to that, right? There's some clarity to that. There's some reasons why you might want to do that. But we've chosen to be a church that wants to see common ground amongst a, kind of a broad variety of accepted community, historically orthodox Christianity, right? This idea that we want to have that Venn diagram overlap of being in that middle space where Christians tend to agree. We believe that this opens us up to a broader level of unity across Christianity, and it opens us up to a wider level, a bigger scope of missional capacity. Yeah, I knew I was going to use that Venn diagram today. We had that made just in case I say it. You guys like that? All right. Well, today we're going on to our next one, which is We Empower. Um, I, 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 there, I, oh, actually, I think we have a picture of this. Um, there's a car. Boom. Y'all like that? That's a beast of an automobile. Y'all don't know how to respond right now. You're like, oh, I don't know. This is the car that I learned to drive on. It wasn't mine, but it's very, it, it wasn't the exact one. In fact, this is just a picture I found online, but this is a Pontiac 6000 right here. This thing makes people jealous when you drive it down the street. It's the same color. It's a little different. I mean, we didn't have rust in Bullhead City because it's not that same concoction of, uh, you know, weather, snow, and salt that you all have out here. But we did have a missing hubcap, which uh, was oddly in alignment, different side of the car, but a uh, similar situation. And this is the car that I learned to drive on. And when, it, when I went to my mom, like, I was 15 or so years old. I say, Mom, I want to learn how to drive. I had gone through my driver's permit, got the, you know, the little paper thing that lets me drive with an adult in there. But there was a few dynamics at play in the midst of this moment, right? My mom has all the power in this, and rightfully so. She owns the car. She's gotten years of experience, and she has a driver's license. Like, she knows the, the, the rules of the road. I also discovered while I was, I visited, when I was in um, Oregon, I made a, uh, a road trip down south to see my mom and my brother while we were out there. And um, while I was out there, I learned, I think she said six, but it was very little, like, very, like six, seven, eight years old. She was um, operating a tractor out on a farm at six, seven, eight years old, right? So this is expert level understanding to have a six-year-old level of like, I've been driving vehicles since you were in diapers, man. Like, like at the age you were in diapers, I was operating this tractor out on a farm, all right? So sit down and take a position of listening right now, buddy, all right? So as we were doing this, I remember we go out to, um, to a... Uh, an empty parking lot, 
and she starts to tell, tell me, you know, all the different things I need to know. Here's the stick shift, right? Here's the blinkers. This is, uh, you know, windshield wipers, accelerator, brake, all the different things that I need to know. Um, and, and in the midst of this, she's telling me, like, okay, I want you to go up this row, around this row, go into these lines. Like, it's an empty space, so there's not much damage that can happen. But we're about 10 minutes in, and she's like, all right, switch seats, turn the car off, and, and, and give me the keys. I'm like, whoa, what just happened, Mom? I didn't think it was that bad, but, but, but something's different from my perspective than hers, right? She's been driving almost her entire life, I found out. She's an expert at this, and she understands that every corner I cut, every white line I cross inside of this parking lot is you just clipped the vehicle, and you just backed into the bumper of another car. She realizes what's at cost in this moment. So after 10 minutes, she realizes, you're not ready for this. Hand me the keys and, and, and switch seats with me. I'm not ready for this, maybe. We're just not ready for this whole situation, right? So I'm mad, and you know, for the next two months, I'm reminding her of all the reasons why she should let me take the keys to this car. I can drive myself to football. It won't have to inconvenience you with that. I can get myself to and from work if you let me borrow the car. In fact, if there's some errands that need to be run, guess who can conveniently help you out with those errands, right? It's me. So get me this driver's license, mom. Well, it took me like nine or so months. I was really angry. But it doesn't take, um, you know, as, as you grow older, you start to look back and realize uh, what if I was in her position, right? And so my anger in this moment was one part of that. But then on the other side, my understanding of like, okay, I can maybe see how it might be problematic for somebody who has all of this knowledge watching a novice driver try to drive around your only vehicle, that if it gets broken, that's, that's all we have. Like, we wouldn't have that around. And so I understood, man, I, I kind of look back and realize why my mom made that decision, have you been on the other side of the teaching, right? You've been, a, you've been a, a student, I'm sure, but have you been on the other side? I was thinking about the same idea. Have you ever tried to teach a toddler how to brush their teeth? Anyone? I know probably not all of you, but if you've done it, like you kind of get down, right? You get down and you got your toothbrush and you're like, sh -sh -sh -sh, you're like trying to get this. We would do, do this thing like say grr so that they would go grr and show us their teeth. And we do the circle, circle, circle. Then you go back and forth. Ah, get to the tops, the sides and all this stuff. And then you're like, okay, now it's your turn. And you kind of give them their chance and you step back and look at them. And you're like, no, you didn't even put toothpaste on the toothbrush, man. Like that's basic level toothbrushing. Get, get the toothpaste, put it on here. And... and <laughs> That's chewing. You're not brushing. That's chewing. You're, that's a totally different skill set for this situation. Eventually, you're like, just let me do this. Like, I got to go to bed. It's late at night. I'm going to just get this thing going. Go, go to bed, right? Because there's time and energy at stake, right? Sometimes when you're trying to teach somebody to do something, eventually you just lose patience and you start to do these things on your own. Then there are times, though, when the person who's a teacher is gatekeeping, there's a time when you have the ability to hand something off, but you're just not ready. You realize that maybe you have some trust issues in this situation. Or maybe the little uh, perfectionist monster inside of you starts to creep up and say, well, they're not doing it the same way you would do it. That's not quite particularly the way that I would do this. In fact, if I was doing it, I could probably do it faster, better, and with a higher level of efficiency than you can, and you have a hard time letting this go, and we find ourselves gatekeeping things that we think people aren't doing the right way, and you're holding on to something maybe that doesn't even belong to you in the first place. But if we as Christians want to train people, 
if we want to equip people, if we want to do what the Great Commission says and make disciples, teaching people to follow Jesus and to obey the commands, eventually we have to let go of power on our end. We have to open our hands and release it, right? You're going to have to trust people with what you've taught to see. Did they learn it? Have you, have you figured this out yet? And it's not enough to simply delegate. You have to empower people to do things. It's even harder when you realize that it could cost you something, right? When you realize that there may be something at risk. When you realize that maybe there is resources or a platform or prestige or power that needs to be shared or even invested with somebody that you're going to have to give up because we love holding on to things like that, right? As a people, we like to protect what we think is ours and try to keep these things under our own supervision. And God sees this in us, but he calls us to a higher level of trust in this. And what I want you to see today from the scriptures is very simply that Jesus isn't asking us to do something he's not also willing to do himself, all right? And so I want you to open your Bibles to Luke 10. If you have your Bibles with you today, open up to the New Testament, Luke 10. We will have the, the um, verses up on the screen, but if you want to go ahead and take, uh, open up or click to them in your Bibles, whatever app of your choice that you use, I'll be reading from the NIV. Now this verse, if you've been here in the last month, should be a little bit familiar. We taught on it a few weeks ago, but we're going to take a little bit different angle. Let me read it. Luke 10.1 says, After this the Lord appointed 70 others. Does anyone have 72 in there? Are you all just watching up here? We got a couple that say 72, right? Okay, I'm going to address that here in just a second. Some of your translations will say 72, some will say 70. Um, Just the, the quick answer to that is some of our earliest manuscripts have 70. Some of our earliest manuscripts have 72 in it. Um, and and, and I'll, I'll point that out, one of the reasons for this here in just a second. It says, The Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. All right, that's not the best pep talk, right? You kind of want to go into, into Jesus' world and be like, Jesus, like, this isn't the, the greatest way to coach somebody. But I think what he's doing, he's making sure that he's not candy coating, sugar coating anything. He knows what he's about to send them into is the test portion of their discipleship. And so if you remember, at one point he said, come follow me. That's the invitation side of it. But now he's saying, I'm going to send you out and let's put to test the things that we've been talking about and dealing with and let's, and, and, and let's see what happens for this. Now, he asks them to give some things up, doesn't he? Don't take a purse. Don't take uh, uh, an extra pair of sandals with you. But what we're going to find out is when they return, that they were actually, in exchange for the things they gave up, were given a different kind of power instead. So if we jump down to verse 17, it says this. The 70 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. That's pretty powerful, right? He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, what I like is that's a a statement of authority. Like, I am the person in the position of power. I didn't even battle this dude. I saw him fall. So he's in this position of authority, right? Verse 19, and I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm him, will harm you. However, do not rejoice in the spirit, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, 
full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Now, Jesus is modeling something for us. He is our example of a person who tends to empower Others, uh, as he is engaging with them, he wants to say, hey, this is for you. I'm going to give a little bit of something that I have and hand it to you. And I want you to think about this, that Jesus, who is God, could easily have done what they were doing better and quicker and with way more efficiency than these 70 guys that he sends out if he wanted to do it that way, right? We go full Thanos and just snap, right? And it's all done. He's got these, everyone who he wants to know Jesus want, will know them if that's what he chose to do. But what he does instead is he invites people into, gives them, shares the authority of what he has and allows them to participate in the kingdom movement he is enacting on the earth. It's much more relational. It's much more growth-oriented. Then he takes a part of himself, places it in them. In a sense, and we've used this term before in the gospel series, he divests himself of authority and power and comes up underneath those with less power, less authority than him, so that he can lift them up. Philippians says it this way. 2, 6 through 8, I'm just going to read it, it's not up on the screen. It says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Do you see kind of how he's going deeper and deeper into the level of sacrifice, into the level of... Um, cultural marginalization. And then he picks out 70 ordinary people. All they had to do is be willing to be used by God. This isn't even the top 12, right? We're not even using the apostles in this moment. In fact, if you go back a a chapter, in in chapter 9, he actually sent the 12 out first, and now he's sending out a second wave of people. He makes sure that they are stripped of all of the earthly powers and all the things that they trust in, and then he sends them out like lambs among wolves. Like, that's not even an adult sheep you're sending out with wolves. You ain't got your adult teeth yet. Just go out there and hang out with the wolves, ferocious as they are, no purse, no bag, no sandals. Why did he do that? He wants their weakness to be revealed so that they can understand that the power they have is divine, that it's supernatural, it's given to them by God, transferred over from him so that they can accomplish the work that that God sent them out to do. That's incredible. I mean, think about that. That's incredible. But he goes even deeper, and we're going to jump back a little bit further. If you go uh, all the way left, um, back into your your Bible, the first five books of it, you'll find a a book named Numbers. um, Numbers 11, and this will be up on the screen as well. Numbers 11, starting in verse 16, I want you to see a connection here. It says, the Lord said to Moses, bring me how many? Seventy. Is that familiar? Seventy of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there and, listen to this, I will take some of the power of the spirit that is on you and I will put it in them, on them. 
They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. Then we're going to jump down to verse 24 where we see the fulfillment of that. It says, so Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought them together, 70 of their elders, and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke with them, and he took some of the power of the spirit that was on him, on Moses, and put it on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. Now, I love this. This is in, uh, we have our preaching collective where our pastors kind of come together and talk about the sermon in the next weeks or a couple weeks, and um, Pastor Sam brought this to our attention. If you just keep reading one more verse, however, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they did not go out to the tent, yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. Now, I think what happened in the translations, it's not a contradiction, Some of them decided, hey, do we include these two stragglers or do we not include these two stragglers? And so some of the manuscripts say 70, some of them say 72. This is is my point. I don't think the number is as important as the fact that you understand what Jesus did was meant to be connected to what happened in this verse. They're connected. That's not in our imaginations. In fact, the Jewish New Testament commentary says this, that the 70 sent by Jesus in Luke correspond to the 70 elders, Moshe, that's the Hebrew uh, uh, pronunciation of Moses, elders Moshe appointed in the wilderness who received of the Spirit and prophesied. So we see another impartation, but not just an, uh, an impartation of responsibility, God empowering them to do the thing that he has called them to accomplish and to do in this moment. So there isn't just a challenge, there's an invitation, right? There's a challenge, but then there's an empowering of the others, and it's not just a one-time thing. It's not just a one-off moment that we see Jesus do. In fact, I like to think of it as this. This is something built so intricately, woven so much into the character of God. This is who he is. He chooses the relational route by inviting humanity to participate. He chooses the relational route by sharing his rule and reign in his people. And he's been doing so from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In fact, I I think it's like this theological exclamation point. He's going to build it into the scriptures like this prophetic echo that takes place throughout history, giving us every opportunity to see this is the kind of God that we serve. He is a God who empowers people. Well, I want you to see a couple other things that somebody with all authority in heaven and earth do with their power. First, the Lord's Supper, and I'm just going to read these to you. It says in John 13, 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, a statement of authority and power, and that, and that he had come from God and was returning to him. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped the towel around his waist to wash their feet. And we see true authority uses their power to serve others. And in doing so, Jesus levels the hierarchy between rabbi and student. He leverages his power to upend this oppressive structure, even in this context and in this day. The second is the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Another statement of power. 
Therefore, go, and here comes the assignment, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then he sends the Holy Spirit in a wind and tongues of fire, saying, I am pouring out my Spirit on all people, young, old, male, female. He empowers them to do the very thing that he asks them to accomplish. Not just to accomplish it, though, to exceed it. If you remember, John 14 says, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. We see Jesus literally handing off the keys in Matthew 16, 18. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, if your mom, my mom, and you're watching right now, you'd be like, you didn't have the right to the keys yet, man. You needed a few more times, laps around this thing before I could hand them to you. And so there is a point for students to understand their place under teachers. But what I think is happening here is that the God of the universe took out his keys and hands it to them. He says, I trust you to take this thing on. Take them. Walk on, take this even further, even more down the line than I could have. Jesus called people to him. He invited them into discipleship. Then he sent them out to do it, and he empowered them to accomplish it by putting the literal keys of the kingdom inside of their hands. Okay. I think I made my point. God is a God who empowers. Amen? Do we see it? He empowers others, and he wants us to be a community of people who empower others. So what does that look like here in our church at Common Ground Northeast? Well, I want you to see just a couple of things and a couple of angles that this applies to. First is we organize ourselves around this concept um, that you may have heard. It's the priesthood of all believers. Here, we believe that empowers all people, not just clergy, right? Not just pastors, not just elders. Everybody who calls himself a follower of Jesus is empowered to be a part of the priesthood, meaning it flattens this clergy-laity distinction, this hierarchy that's built into that, so that it often holds people back from feeling like they can engage in ministry because I don't have that kind of degree, or I'm not gifted in the same way that is, or I'm just, I don't have that title, so that's not my purpose here. And it causes people to say that they can't be a part of the kingdom work in this moment. And it's just not true. There are no specially privileged Christians. All of you have direct access to God. All of you have the filling of the Spirit. All of you have been given gifts by God to do what he wants you to do here. All of us are meant to take responsibility for the work of ministry on this earth. Ephesians says this to each one of you. Um, to, sorry, to each one of us, grace, catch all of us, right? To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed. He gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors or shepherds and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature and attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. Nobody's excluded from that. So what's my job? What do you all pay me to do here, right? Or any pastor, anyone who's in some sort of paid position at a church. Well, I think our job is to equip you. 
Our job is to empower you. Our job is to help you do the works of service where you're at. It's more effective than trying to get people all here to come hang out with me all the time, right? And, and to guide us into the maturation of the fullness of Christ. This is why here we consider very strategically that house churches are our front line, number one, our front line for pastoral care and for mission at our church. We want to strategically embolden and release you to use your gifts as shepherds. Do you think I'm the only one with the shepherding gift here? No. I'm probably not even the strongest shepherding gift here. I have other gifts, but if you've gotten to know me, I'm definitely more of a challenger than I am a, hey, let's make you feel good and gather everyone up and you know, sing songs together. We want to strategically use your gifts and enable you to use those in your house churches so that you can be pastors to the house church and to your neighbors. There are teachers amongst us, and that's another platform for us to teach. We want to strategically empower you to be missionaries in your neighborhoods in our post-Christian culture where people are less likely to come through these doors now. It's more of a go and tell rather than a come and see mentality. It's a shift in who we are. And this is why you might find yourself in a given situation where you come to us and say, hey, I have this really cool ministry idea. And we're like, great, how can I help you do that thing? Right? I can't remember fully, but uh, Sam has this saying when someone says, hey, I think the church should really do this. And he's like, great, I'm looking at the church. How do you want to do it? Right? Right? This is why we think ministries are so important like Care Porter, right? Instead of bottlenecking the flow of resources in and out of our benevolence where we have to you know, do all the paperwork and all the things necessary that are good for accountability, you all can just directly address the needs that Care Portal puts up. If you're not familiar with Care Portal because you're new, it's an online thing that they tell us when, when, it, when someone is about to go into the foster care system, but it's because of something very minuscule. Like, uh, for instance, they, don't, they can't afford a bed. We can provide that bed and that person does not go into the foster care system. One time it was just, they needed to have, there was a lot of um, uh, uh, insects in their house and they had to have a, a, someone come in and a pesticide person come in and work with them. We just paid for it. We constantly are matching these needs all the time. In fact, I tell you over and over again, sometimes before I can even open the email that tells us about this, our community answers and has, has like, I've got this, I've got this, 20 different items, gone. We are constantly just flowing our resources through this care portal system. This is why other ministries, like supplies that we gave to Winding Ridge, if you were here for our last, um, last week, we gave a little update. Kathy came up and talked about the school that she works for, that, that, that we used a, an Amazon wish list for us to do it, and they're still getting boxes over and over. Like, man, this church just keeps sending us supplies so that the teachers don't have to use their own funds or the school doesn't have to figure out how they're going to meet these needs for their students that don't have everything they need for school. This is why, and I love, I did not realize that our, our, um, our highlight today was going to be the blood drive. But our blood drive started because a congregation member had a conviction about something and said, I need to do something about that. She came to us, and now we consistently host blood drives every couple of months here in this building because she decided to do something about it. And all we did as a staff was, we'll open our doors for that. 
We'll, we'll move some scheduling things around for that and get this room open. We'll get a, thing, a couple things set up, but we really only facilitated. It's all done because of her initiative here, and now we are providing, I don't know what you call it, pints? I almost said gallons. Maybe not gallons. Pints and pints of blood for people who need blood in our community. There's things we can collectively do too, though. I don't want you to hear that. There are times that we're like, hey, we all want to go in together on this. At times, things that we do together are better than things we can do individually in our house churches, and we try to bring those to you strategically. But what we want you to see is that with this idea of, of, of allowing this to happen at the smallest level of our churches, it, it cultivates a missional imagination in you. Ideas that I can't think of, but that you and your house church has, like we can take care of that person. We can take care of that need right here, right now. We don't have to always go to the hub in order to accomplish this goal. And this is what it looks like to be the priesthood of all believers, taking that seriously and acting on it. That's the first thing. The last thing here is second. We want to create empowerment um, as, uh, uh, sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. We want to use empowerment in a way that it informs how we engage in issues of justice and reconciliation for them, those whom society pushes into the margins. Because there's a way in which we can engage in things like that that benefit ourselves, Right? It's in the way that we might bolster our own public philanthropy standing, right, with the photo op that we post on the social media. It's in the way that we might try to do something just so that we ease the guilt because we see somebody who doesn't have a need or, or isn't as fortunate as we are with their needs. It's in the way that we might use somebody else's real-life difficult situation, just kind of dip our toe in but step back into our comfortable lives and say, man, that's rough. And, and we educate ourselves at the expense of someone's actual life, Right? It's in the way that we might develop an unhealthy relationship with others as the holder of the resources. And if you need something, you can always come to me. But if you need something, you always got to come to me. Right? It's in the way that we might create ourselves as gatekeepers, even communally, not just personally. And so white evangelicalism and Western expressions of the church and theology, right? The background of many in this room, not all but many, have held on to a position of authority at times that doesn't belong to us in the first place because we've used our platform to critique others against our cultural norms, right? Not the scriptures. To vet the expressions of black and brown, expressions of community, church ecclesiology, and to act like we're the ones who hold the keys to this. And we get to decide who's right and who's wrong. If we truly believe in the priesthood of all believers, then it's on us to lower ourselves in the hierarchy, to trust and to learn from other communities what the Spirit of God is doing. Right? Maybe we're missing something that needs to be spoken into our lives, into our hearts, from those who are different from us, and when necessary, to divest ourselves of power so that we can lift others up. Over and over again, we see Jesus lift the oppressed. He was moved to compassion. He leveraged his power, the purpose of getting underneath those who are at the bottom of society's hierarchies and lifting them up. And so we can look at the Gospels, right? Jesus used his male authority to empower women in a dangerously patriarchal society. Not just freeing them from the status of some sort of property or ownership, but establishing women in all sectors of Christian leadership, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. We have examples of all of them in the scriptures. 
everyone. Jesus used his freed status to empower the servants and the slaves. He called them brothers and sisters, lifting them up out of the cultural hierarchy that they, they were born into and into the status of family amongst the oikoses and households. Jesus used his rabbinical presence to empower the Gentiles. That's a lot of us in here, right? You should be thankful. Outsiders, those who are considered unclean, and he established them as, as heirs of the heavenly kingdom, even amidst the Zionist tendencies of his own people during that time. Jesus used his voice to empower children around him, those who had no say in anything. He said the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Jesus didn't just heal lepers, he touched them, and he brought humanity to their ravaged bodies. It's always going that next step, that next level. And so what I want us to do is to take a little bit of stock in our hearts and our minds. This is something we want to be as common ground. We want to be those who empower, not these other things. And so if you're sitting there finding yourself, I'm not thinking as you're listening to me, I'm not so sure. I don't know, man. Seems a little bit much. I guarantee you there's someone in this room saying, yes, yes, yes. And you know the difference between those two? is that the gospel says it's good news to the poor and the powerless and the captive and the oppressed. But the gospel will be a stumbling block for those who are lofty and powerful and those who are oppressing others. And so depending on our heart posture right now, where do we find ourselves? Saying yes and yes, God, do whatever it needs to happen to divest myself in order to uplift others, I am willing to do it, God. Even if it hurts, even if it means handing off the keys, even if it means that it's going to cost me something. And so where are you right now, personally, holding power that maybe you don't deserve to have in the first place or that you should be handing off? Maybe where do you publicly have power that you should be handing off? Maybe us as a church corporately, where are we holding power that we need to hand off? It's going to cost us stuff, right? It's going to take time, but Jesus remained patient with you, remember? It's going to take energy, but Jesus sustained, right? It's going to take resources, but God is a provider. It takes sharing and using what you have to lift up others, but we see that Jesus gave what he had to lift up others, and it takes a voice and presence because just throwing money at issues devoid of relationship is charity fueled by pity. It's not empowerment. It's not what Jesus did. So we're motivated because of this. Jesus stretched out his hands. He lived as a servant among us. He was obedient even to death. And he died in the most cruel way because he loved us so that he could empower us to become sons and daughters of the Most High God. And in the midst of all the empowering of others, can we never forget that our position once was alienated, enemies of God, but Christ loved us so much he moved on behalf of us. We were separated from the kingdom of heaven, and we empower others better when we realize that we were empowered by the love of God. And that's our motivation. We empower better when we learn and understand how much we have been loved in the process and how much Christ gave up in order to give us that standing. Let's pray together and ask for God to make our lives consistent with this truth. Yeah, so Lord, thank you. 
God, for the challenge, but also that we know even in this, you can empower us. Even as hard as it is to open our hands and to let go, you can empower us. Because we saw it. We saw it in Moses. We saw it in Jesus over and over again. And we even see it in his disciples as they took that next generation and empowered other people in the surrounding areas and handed off everything that they could to see the keys of the kingdom expand and continue. So God, where we struggle, would you give us clarity? Where we struggle, would you give us boldness? Where we struggle, would you give us that, that, that next level moment of saying, I'm not just going to stop here with delegation or just handing out something. I want to empower. I want to give of myself. I want to sacrifice. I want to come up underneath those the society has marginalized and use what you've been given to me for their purposes. Thank you for loving us and thank you for doing that for us. May we do well with what you've entrusted us with, God. And we ask for this right now in the name of Jesus Christ. All God's people said, amen.